Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. My mom got me a new Bible this week, and I'm really stoked to preach from it. And uh, yeah, Bevy, that's right. Go, Bevy. Uh, So I'm really, really grateful for that. My uh, man's best friend, Dempsey, my dog... Uh, decided to to chew off the corner of my old one, and it was absolutely driving me insane. Not my best friend in that moment, but other than that, he's still my best friend. So anyway, I got a new Bible today, and I'm stoked to preach from it. So again, if you're new here, uh, my name's Alex, and I'm one of the pastors, and so I'm uh, grateful to be preaching God's Word uh, from the passage that Gloria just read for us. And uh, thank you, Natalie, again, for leading us in our time of reflection. That was so great, and just Dan and Zach, all the guys leading us in worship. I'm just grateful for what God is doing here uh, in our church. And so today uh, we are going through one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. It's the very beginning of the early church and how they are moved toward generosity, humility, selflessness, and love of neighbor. That's what we're looking at today. And so my hope and prayer today would, not be, would be that we would not just uh, observe an example from the ancient church and go, wow, isn't that great? But actually lean into their example by the same Holy Spirit that regenerated them and was empowering them, they, that would then happen here amongst us. And so that's my prayer for today. So let's, let's go before God once more in prayer and, uh, and then we'll jump into the text. Uh, God, you are sovereign and everything belongs to you. So this morning, we're grateful to be in your house and sitting under your word. I thank you for our church. I thank you that you're here with us as we've gathered in the name of Jesus. Father, today we ask you to increase our faith, increase our trust, increase our devotion and our commitment to you and to your word. So would you help me over the next few minutes remain faithful to you and to your word. And we pray that you would strengthen our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in Acts chapter three, let me just bring us up to speed real quick. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John, the early apostles, uh, were on their way into temple. And as they're going into the temple, they heal a man. A man was over 40 years of age, suffered from paralysis his whole life. And so he was left because there was no government system in place to take care of this man. He is left to beg outside of the temple day after day. So it'd either be family members or friends or just the generosity of strangers that would provide for this man's daily needs. They look at Peter and the man looks at Peter and John, Peter and John make eye contact with him, right? And they say, we don't have any money. We don't have silver and gold, but what we do have in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. The man then placed his faith in Jesus and miraculously (laughs) stood to his feet and was blown away. He then enters the temple, something he had never done, enters the temple, walking, leaping, praising God. Lots of shouting, everyone's blown away and a crowd gathers. A lot of people in that moment convert and go, I'm putting my faith in the resurrected Jesus also but not everybody celebrated through a party. Rather, there was also a lot of religious opposition. Pharisees, or sorry, Sadducees, uh, chief priests, uh, and, and so on, a, a, a gathering of, of a council came together and said, we're not into 
this Jesus resurrected Messiah thing. It's a nice miracle you did. You can no longer preach in his name, the end. So that's essentially what's gone on so far. They were placed under arrest. They were tried, found innocent, yet kind of guilty. You're innocent, yes. This guy, we can't deny the fact that you worked a miracle. He's standing here. Uh, At the same time, we need you to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Peter just comes right back at him and says, well, we cannot help but testify to the things we've seen and heard, which was just the most punk rock defiance of the government right there. Like, actually, we're just gonna keep doing this anyway. And... They do. So they go back to their friends, tell their friends what they had done. We healed this guy in Jesus' name. They told us to shut up. Would you please pray for us? We pick up now. They're filled with boldness and strength, and they're going to continue preaching. So they do. They preach. And now we're here in chapter 4 where they are gathering together, and God is moving powerfully. So first verse Acts chapter four, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. We'll we'll expound on this a bit more in just a second, but first, the full number, we know this is roughly 5,000 men, 5,000 and men tended to uh, represent families. So there's at least 5,000, bare minimum, new Christians. Jesus said, died, resurrected, ascended back into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and now we've got roughly 5,000 new Christians gathered from all over the Roman Empire in the city of Jerusalem. People from Iraq, people from Syria, people from Italy, people from Egypt had all come to celebrate Pentecost, and they're together, this eclectic, diverse people of God who now have their faith in Jesus, there's 5,000 of them. And Luke says they're all of one heart and soul, which is pretty amazing. To go to a Hawks game or a Sounders game and find everybody of one heart and soul, that's, it's kind of a given. We're united about one thing in particular in that moment. The The rest of the day, we might not be divided or, you know, united on much, but In that hour, they are. This, however, is people who is far beyond a sporting event. These are people who have come together and they've placed their faith in Jesus, not for an hour or three hours or whatever, but rather they've placed their faith in Jesus and they've gone from death to life. They're now united in one heart and one soul. This is not the first time you see this phrase, one heart and soul show up. So if you have your Acts journal or take notes today, uh, it shows up eight times in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, It's also a a phrase that Jesus himself uses to describe when he sums up the whole law. And they say, what's the whole law? Jesus, can you do it? What's the law? He describes it like this. He says, here's what the law is. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. By the way, that's not the gospel. Get that real clear, by the way. When they say, what's the law? Jesus says, do this stuff. The gospel is... I broke all the laws. I didn't love God with all my heart, soul, and strength, and God loved me anyway. That's good news, okay? That's how Jesus summed up the law, though. You wanna know what the law is? Love God with all your heart and soul and strength. So again, these are things that show up again and again. This wholeness, this wholeness toward God, this wholeness toward self, this wholeness toward your neighbor. Another way Jesus said to be whole was over in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's his way of saying, be whole be complete, okay? The full number, one heart 
and one soul. Luke was hired by a very wealthy man named Theophilus to now travel the empire and collect all this data and compile it about this early movement known as Christianity, right? So Luke is now traveling around, writing all these eyewitness accounts down, interviewing people face to face. He sends all this back to Theophilus and he's reporting these people are united in one heart and soul. The prophet Jeremiah, by the way, prophesied that this would happen. If you want to look it up later, Jeremiah 32 verse 39 says it just like this. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Okay. 5,000 people, completely diverse, one heart and one soul. They're experiencing this unity beyond beyond anything we've ever seen, but something that we can see and experience in the church. And here we go. How does this unity come in such incredible diversity in the midst of terrifying threats from leaders? Here it is. The answer is in the next verse. Where do they get this power? It says this, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So where's the unity, the selflessness, the humility, the love and all this stuff actually coming from? Where are they driving their, their strength from? It says it right there. From the great power in the preaching of the apostles of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. That's where they're getting their unity of all the things that can divide us as human beings. This is what brought the early church together. It was not just kind of a common idea, or maybe we should maybe look after each other a little bit because that's the right thing to do, but rather it was anchored in, centered on solely the person and the work of Jesus as he has died, resurrected, ascended, and now the spirit of God is bringing these people together. And so the apostles had been threatened to, you will lose your life for this if you keep this up. They have been promised, you will lose your life. We will persecute you the same way we persecuted Jesus if you keep this up. And the apostles Stick to their word. They told them, we're going to keep doing this. And here they are. They're continuing to open their mouths and proclaim the resurrected Jesus from the dead. So that's what they're doing. They're boldly, blatantly, openly denying the religious authorities and proceeding in the power that they prayed that they would receive. Okay. And here's what they're doing. As they proclaim the resurrection of the dead, if you grew up in church, you might've heard this a billion times, but you gotta put yourself in this scenario again. Like if you can put that in your imagination, go back to this moment. If you were there, place yourself there. They're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead and they're proclaiming firsthand experience, okay? They're not, they're not passing it on. It's not secondhand, thirdhand information. This is Peter. This is John. Men that rolled with Jesus actually saw the whole thing play out. You want to mark a few verses down? That They're going to be highlighting their own personal experience. Luke 24, verse 36 to 39. Jesus appeared to them in the upper room. Uh, he was also examined. John chapter 20, verse 24. He is examined by doubting Thomas. 
Uh, he appeared to over 500 believers at one time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. He ate fish on the beach with the disciples on Easter morning. Luke chapter 24, verse 42. Can you just put yourself in that moment? If you're in that crowd and you're watching Peter and John go, we were told to shut up and we're not going to. And we're going to continue to proclaim that we actually had breakfast with Jesus. We talked to Jesus. We first John, read first John chapter one. We, we handled him with our own hands. We, we examined him and they're preaching with unbelievable boldness, knowing that I've just got a limited amount of time before they're going to take my life from me, from me for this. And they're just going for it. I can't imagine, like of all the places in the Bible that I wish I could actually personally experience other than the fish on the beach with Jesus on Easter morning, um, this would be the moment. <laughs> They're standing there preaching boldly. So imagine hearing them proclaim this good news. And can you, if you do some imaginative reading and you place yourself there in that moment. Can you imagine seeing the tears coming down people's faces? The shouts, the joy, victory. Peter saying, yeah, Jesus, the death is dead. This is insane. Jesus is up from the grave and he walked around and we had breakfast and he appeared to 500 people. And just, can you imagine like seeing the crowd? You've got educated people. You've got scholars there. You've got unhoused neighbors there. You've got families there. There's teenagers there. <laughs> there's people who have, who've read their old Testament. There's 80 year old people standing in the crowd. There's toddlers crawling around. There's a dad with a kid on his shoulders, watching the apostles preach the resurrection. Peter has an unbelievably huge grin across his face going, it's all true. I'm not making this up. This is real. This is why this man's actually standing. The guy that was paralyzed was healed in the name of Jesus. Like it's actually sweeping through the place. Can you imagine being in that crowd, in that moment, just what would just race through your body like we just sang a moment ago, be the, the fire inside my veins. What a line. Yes, like if you were there in that moment, that's what you'd feel. It would be overwhelming. Yes? Yeah, all right. And so, I mean, there's, they've been given the gift to speak in tongues. They're proclaiming the gospel in Chinese and they grew up in Israel. How are they doing that? Unbelievable. This is, so I, I, I'm so impressed. I, I love that. I sat in my office on Wednesday night, just, just blown away reading this over and over. So they're passionately proclaiming Jesus from the dead. And it says the, that there was great grace upon them all. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Okay, so we've got 5,000 new converts <laughs> right here in Jerusalem, most of whom belong to poorer classes, most, not everybody though. They've traveled from out of town. It's been a long trek. And yet everybody is staying in town. Pentecost is over. And yet 
it's, it's kind of like when church ends here on Sundays. It's kind of like, go in peace. And nobody leaves. <laughs> Everybody hangs out. That's kind of what's happening. It's like, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get back home, but we're hanging out. Something's happening here. That's what's going on. And so there's not a needy person among them. How? Here's what it says. For as many were owners of lands or houses, they, they, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this tells us something about the early community too. It wasn't just, just a movement among, amongst the, the poor, the disenfranchised, the down and out. Now, scripture's unbelievably clear. God's on the side of the poor. Like, crystal clear. Over and over and over and over again. God makes it crystal clear to those who have or are going without, his heart moves toward them in grace and compassion. And every time he tells his own children, you need to move toward them too. If you have, move toward the need. That's how God works throughout. But not everybody in the community was on the margin of society. In fact, as we read right here, there's Barnabas who owns a field and sells it. In fact, there's several affluent people in the early church. So God is not only on the side of the poor. He is pro-human throughout. And he calls those of us who have means to move toward the needs again and again. So let's not gloss over this one thing that Luke is communicating about our brothers and sisters. And here it is. The salvation that they experienced was not something that they were content to merely go to Bible studies or seminary classrooms and debate and discuss. The content of the gospel is not something to just argue about or write songs about or just think about, but the, the, the salvation that they experienced made its way all the way down into their heart and transformed how they saw their things, their actual stuff. It was not something that you do in your head only. It is not something that you just pray about every once in a while. It's not something that you just write a song about. It was something that was so powerful, so real, so transformative that it actually changes the very earthy things around you and how you actually relate to them. So it changed how they view their own personal, private possessions. The inheritances they had received from their families from deceased loved ones, their hard-earned money that they went to school for, trained for, and earned, made it themselves. Their valuables, their property, their homes, the things that belong to them and the deed of the house is in their name. It's their stuff. All of a sudden, wasn't as valuable to them anymore. By the way, he's like, okay, here we go. So we're, this, is, this is the socialism talk, isn't it, dude? Yeah, it's not socialism. The government's not regulating any of this. <laughs> this is, this, it's like, well, it must be capitalism. Not that either. 
This is what happens when people respond to the good news of Jesus and the gospel and things just become things. Why? Because these people are made in the image of God. This is amazing that they now all of a sudden could see people from all over the empire with different ethnicities, different skin color, different tastes in food, different music preferences, and on and on and on and on, all of a sudden looking around going, whatever the world uses to divide us doesn't stand a chance compared to the Jesus that unites us. That's, that's so breathtaking. That's so amazing in such a fractured and fragmented world. There's good news that brings men and women, old, young, affluent, poor, all together. Oh, this is so this is, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's unbelievable. This is what Jesus does. Remember, this is Jesus's work. Like, don't read this divorce from Jesus as though he floated back into heaven and now he's just somewhere else. And this is his active work reigning and ruling as the living resurrected king who sent his spirit to do his work. That's what he's doing. He's bringing people together. He's not sending you off into a cave to just read your Bible alone for the rest of your life. He's bringing his people together. Oh, this is so, this is great. This is great. Okay. So now their possessions, when weighed against the value and the needs of their neighbors, their possessions no longer possessed them. In fact, they now view their possessions as that which God gave them to be stewarded in response to all that Jesus had done. So under the great, as Luke says, under the great grace of God, their wealth became redefined. All their wealth was no longer in their stuff. <laughs> their wealth was now in their relationships. Their relationship to God, their relationship, how they understood themselves as God's child, right? And now, how they related to those around them. Their relationship with Jesus transformed their relationships and their things just became things. And catch this. There's no mention of tithing. There's no guilt. There's no law. Um, there's no goofy karma idea of if you do good things, good stuff's coming back to you. Nope. <laughs> um, there's also no uh, prosperity gospel. If you, do, if you do right by your, your, your poorer neighbor, uh, God's gonna give you that boat. <laughs> Nope, <laughs> none of that's mentioned. It's not that. This is what happens when people actually see Jesus dying on a cross in their place for their sin. That's what happens. 
You go, I'm taken back. I don't care about the square footage anymore. I don't care about the boat. I don't care about the thing, whatever the thing is. This is what happens when you're undone over sin, undone over the fact that I broke God's law, I broke God's heart, and I did it again and again and again and again. I deserve the wages of my sin is death. I deserve Good Friday to happen to me, and instead, Jesus stepped in my place and suffered under the wrath of God for my own sin. And now I, by the grace of God only, I am now justified. I'm now made blameless. I'm now made righteous. I'm now filled with the spirit of God. My stuff, you can have it. You can just have it. It's not, it's not mine. What do I have that I've not been freely given? That's what Paul says. Right? And don't you know that James, James was the apostle. He was the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. So you know he's standing on the side like, this is, this is it. Remember when we covered James? And James is like, James, James says, don't tell people be warmed and be filled. Go give them your jacket. James is just going, this is awesome. This is totally, this is it. Everybody is, is enamored with what Jesus did for them. And all of a sudden, nothing seemed to matter other than the well-being of their brothers and sisters around them. Yes, amen, this is good news. And it's like, well, you know, that just doesn't seem like good stewardship. That's the greatest stewardship in the world. That's the greatest stewardship in the world. To love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said it this way, to, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Like, I, if I give it all away, fine. I, I got something better coming to me and it's not here. It's not here. There's something that's going to happen when I am resurrected as Jesus is resurrected that just outweighs everything that this world has to offer me. That's what's going on here. And it swept up not just in the apostles, but the whole gamut. 5,000 Christians are now acting like this, going, my stuff is just stuff. And I love that it says they have all things in common, which means that the poor who would show up to the apostles and say, I need my needs met. The poor people didn't feel bad for it. We have everything in common. They were able to take without feeling guilty. And you know what else? The rich who were providing were not getting their identity from their generosity, looking down their nose, going at the poor brother or sister going, well, you know, if it wasn't for my, you know, generosity, you, you, you wouldn't have lunch today. They're, they weren't doing that either. What was it? All things were in common. We're the children of God. Nothing can divide us now. We've got the spirit of God in us. <laughs> I, yeah? Oh, all right. If you participate in church, if you participate in church and say, amen, that's totally all right. If you worship and you start clapping your hands and raising your hands and doing that thing, that is okay. You have permission to participate as worshipers of God. Yes? All right. Let's all stand up real quick. Let's just do that. Let's all put our hands up in the air. Do it. You can do it. All right. Put your hands in the air and just go, God, you are sovereign. Everything belongs to you. All right. There you go. Great. All right. There you go. There you go. See, just, we got, I, I'm just dying under being animated. Oh, all right. Okay, great. Where was I? Um, all their things just became things. No one felt shame for taking. No one got their identity merely from giving. Their wealth had been redefined. They had everything in common. And here's why because Jesus had fulfilled the law. That law 
that stood over all of them for over 1,400 years that no one could complete, no one could do. Jesus did it. The true Israel, the true son of God did it. All the weight is off. Jesus fulfilled the law. When Jesus lived his life, he lived it perfectly, not at a 99%, 100% perfect life. When Jesus died his death, he died our death in our place for our sins. When Jesus rose from the grave, he triumphed over Satan, demons, hell, everything that stood against us, Jesus triumphed. Jesus had given them the Holy Spirit to empower and guide and comfort them. Jesus invited them to do what John 15 says, abide in my joy. In Jesus, their salvation was completely secure. And if Jesus did all this for my neighbor, how invaluable must he or she really be? My things are no longer my things. We're the children of God. That's what had swept up in the early church. This is amazing. It's pure heart moving generosity. So Luke now hones in on one more example. I'll just I'll move quickly. I'll move as quickly as I want, I guess. Um, <laughs> I can't say that. I'm like, actually, I might not. Um, it's a, he gives us an example. Remember, Luke is writing uh, to Theophilus, a wealthy man, and he hones in on one example. Everybody was doing this, but he hones in on one example, and he says this. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, so he got a nickname right out of the gate, um, which I like that, um, which means son of encouragement. Of all the nicknames to be given in the world, that's probably the best. <laughs> like, son of encouragement. Wow. So he's the guy that when he comes in the room, everybody's like, yes, I'm going to feel better. He was a seven on the Enneagram. I don't know, whatever it is. Like, we did an Enneagram training this week. And like, he's the encourager. He's the builder up. Now remember, Barnabas comes from Cyprus, Luke tells us. So he comes from Greece. He's a Levite. He belonged to this particular tribe that was instructed in the law, you're not allowed to buy any land. But by the time, you know, the eighth century rolls around, the Levites were actually buying land. They were buying property. Even the prophet Jeremiah, go read Jeremiah 32, a Levite owned land. They were kind of going, yeah, okay, uh, they decided to take it on themselves and they would buy property. Well, this guy, Barnabas, his family was displaced from Jerusalem. And so they had relocated out in Greece. He owns property. Now, listen, this is unbelievable what it's about to tell us about Barnabas. It says that he sold a field that belonged to him. So he owned it and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, a field, by the way, uh, in Rome, it may not sound like much to us, 21st century Seattle urban folks. Um, one scholar points out this, uh, ownership of land was the principal source of wealth and social standing in the Greco-Roman world. Ownership of land. To own anything in Rome, that was it. 
That's where the wealth was. Barnabas owns a field and he sells it. Barnabas takes the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. Which is his way of saying, okay, when needs show up in the church, let's do something about that. That was Barnabas. This is the second field you see mentioned in the book of Acts. Do you remember the first one? Judas bought a field and took his life in it because of his shame. Here's the second field mentioned. Barnabas owns a field, sells it, gives it to Jesus' people because he is unashamed. Oh, that is so cool. So Barnabas, by the way, this was the perfect guy to meet Jesus. Why? Because later, the other perfect guy to meet Jesus, Paul, who's going to be sent throughout the Roman Empire, who's he going to take? Barnabas. Barnabas was, grew up as a Jew in, in Cyprus. Paul grows up in Turkey. A radical Pharisee is now going to be partnered together with Barnabas. They're going to be able to go together and be able to translate the Old Testament and these new events that have now taken place in Christ as the church is coming into being, this, these two guys are going to be an unbelievable team. And of all people for Paul to be set up with, it's the son of encouragement. Why? Because Paul's going to go through it. And God had already met Paul's need in Christ before they met. Isn't that amazing? I love that. I love that. So I don't know how all of this hits you today, um, I sure hope you don't feel a drop of guilt, a drop of shame, a drop of fear or a threat from God because there isn't one. Rather, I hope that the scripture sinks down into your heart and that we not merely admire the early church, but allow what the spirit did in the early church to now move and empower us as we seek to love and bless here, our church, but those who are outside who are in tremendous need. And so as we head into holiday season, you know, and we've got, and needs will inevitably arise, whether you're traveling, but to be mindful of the people that you'll come across and to not overstep them or overlook them, but to be intentional with those whom God puts in your path. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus and the gospel. Thank you, God, for how you have worked so powerfully in your church throughout history. We ask in faith that you would continue to pour out your spirit on us and move us toward those who don't know you and help us to boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the one and only Savior. Father, would you help us to grow in generosity, help us to grow in love of our neighbor, and help us to do that as we anchor everything in you. Thank you, Father, for our time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.